Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. As a Japanese citizen living and working in San Francisco right now, I like to think that I bring quite a lot of innovation to the American economy. I would agree. <laughs> that, that is 100% true, Aki. Welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the inner workings of the global economy. I'm Tori Stowell, an economics reporter for Bloomberg News in our New York bureau today. And I'm joined by my co-host, Aki Ito, who has a new title that she can tell you all about shortly. Hey, Tori, how's it going? So it's a it's a pretty, I don't know, emotional show for us, Aki, because it's our last one, right? I know. Very bittersweet. Why don't you tell everyone uh, where you're moving on to, the greener pastures you're headed toward? <laughs> sure. So I just changed teams within Bloomberg, and uh, I'm an editor on the tech team now. And so I'm going to be helping with our launch of a brand new and very exciting tech brand under Bradstone. That's terrific. And right up your alley out there in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun and really exciting. I've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, Tori, tell us where you're gonna be uh, come come this fall. This fall, I will be locked in a library at law school. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, the uh, terrifying articles out of the New York Times and Bloomberg Business Week haven't dissuaded me from going. Somehow, <laughs> amazing and, and permanently hanging up your journalist hat, right? Maybe. I mean, who says you can't go home, right? Like, it could always happen. Sure. But <laughs> we'll, we'll always have you back. What, what kind of law do you want to practice? I am actually staying mom on that for now, just because I figure it'll probably change once I get into law school. So oh, stay tuned. So if our listeners continue to follow you on Twitter at Tori Stillwell, maybe in three years, <laughs> they'll find out? Yeah, probably. And lots of, like, Boring legal jargon, hopefully. <laughs> Tweets from the <laughs> Yale Lob- Library. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I love that. So, for our final show together, we thought we'd tackle a topic that seems to be everywhere we look these days, and that is immigration, and specifically how immigration affects our economy. Immigration has been a hugely or should I say, hugely? I'm trying to be Donald Trump. I don't, I don't know how my impersonation went. I think I have to nice like, one, get Tori. a little breathier like this. Nice but one. it's been a very important topic in the U.S. election. And obviously Donald Trump has garnered a lot of support from people who are concerned about the growing number of newcomers from other countries here in the U.S. Right. And in the meantime, in the U.K., of course, Brexit happened. And a lot of people who voted to leave the EU did so because they wanted more control over the number of people coming into the country. So kind of this groundswell of anti-immigration nativist sentiment. And membership in the EU is founded on four freedoms guaranteed to citizens and companies. And one of those is the free movement of people. But for a lot of voters in the UK, that freedom became synonymous with uncontrolled immigration. 
So that's why we wanted to use today's show to discuss exactly how immigration affects an economy, because there does seem to be a lot of emotion and debate about this issue, but also a decent amount of misinformation. Right. And because immigration is just such a broad topic, immigration in the U.S. can mean something very different from in Japan or in Brazil. We're going to be limiting our discussion today to the U.S. and to a lesser extent, the U.K., And so before we bring on our guest, let's run through some quick facts about immigrants in the U.S. to set the stage. So to start, the U.S. has more immigrants than any other country in the world by far. Pew Research Center estimates that the foreign-born population residing in the U.S. reached a record 42.4 million in 2014. That's about 14 percent of our population, and that does include uh, documented uh, as well as undocumented immigrants. Right. This includes me, too, right? That's right. You're an immigrant. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm on a work visa here, so I guess that's a non-immigrant visa, but I'm a Japanese citizen. And Mexicans account for the largest share of this, followed by Asian immigrants like me. Other Latin Americans came in third, Europeans and Canadians came in fourth. And among the new arrivals, Asians outnumbered Hispanics. Looking at the unauthorized immigrant population, it actually grew very rapidly between 1990 and 2007, but has since sort of leveled off, even declined a little bit. It topped out around 12.2 million, and now it's closer to 11.2 million. So it's actually about a quarter of the U.S.'s overall foreign-born population. Right. And zeroing in on the labor force, which I think a lot of people care about, last year there were 26.3 million foreign-born persons in the U.S. labor force. So that's about 17 percent of the total. So now that we've got those basics covered, let's get our expert on here to really add some color to this and help us discuss the arguments in support and against immigration control or tighter immigration control. Giovanni Perry is an economics professor at the University of California in Davis who has done extensive research on immigration. Giovanni, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Giovanni, tell us a little bit about you and how you became interested in immigration in the first place. Uh, Yes, uh, there is a little bit of a personal and a professional story. So personally, I was a college student in Europe, in Italy, in the early 90s. And that was the period in which uh, uh, Western Europe uh, had the first wave of Eastern European immigrants. In Italy, they were mainly Albanian and then immigrants from North Africa. And uh, when I finished college, I worked actually in a center that helped them to find a job, to learn the language and put them on their way. And I actually saw the huge amount of talent, abilities, skills that uh, there was there. And then as soon as I finished with this, I came to the U.S. as a graduate student and uh, I was on the other side. And I experienced uh, how many graduate students were from all over the world coming to the U.S. with their talents, abilities and motivation. And uh, in Berkeley, I would say that a good half of the students I interacted with were from the rest of the world. And so I really started thinking how incredibly valuable this potential could have been from an economic point of view. Professionally, I started my career working on the impact of education, skills, and abilities on economic growth of American cities. Uh, I focused on U.S. metropolitan areas in the last 20 years. And obviously, by researching this, uh, the topic of immigration came very soon because a lot of these cities have prospered and growth thanks to the skill and ability of many immigrants. And that's how I grew particularly interested. Now, I really think that immigration is one of the big forces that is shaping our economy 
economic world and social world, and I think we need to understand it much better than we do now. Well, Giovanni, it seems like the basic debate around immigration, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it either helps or hurts the economy. And it seems like there's also some gray area in there, but those seem to be, that's the major fault line. So let's walk through the claims on both sides. And I think, both sides, excuse me, and I think on um, on the help side, the obvious one in my head is that it makes the economy bigger. We have more people working. Yes. So immigration increases the size of the labor force, but more interestingly, increases the variety and the uh, different number of skills and abilities that there are in the labor force. For a modern economy, it's very important to have available a large, thick, as economists say, labor force that can do different tasks and productive function. So you gave some number at the beginning. I want to emphasize that immigration in the U.S. has been very balanced and very highly represented throughout the range of skills. So there are uh, a lot of less educated manual type of worker, which are immigrants, but there are also a lot of very highly and highly educated scientists, engineers, technology workers who are immigrant. So this very large and broad spectrum of skills combined with the fact that when immigrants come into an economy, they not only supply labor, but they also consume, they start companies, they invest, create an increase in the size of the economy, and that's uh, where the positive impact of them come from. Right, right. So on the low-end side, they might be people from uh, more developing economies who do jobs that other Americans don't want to do. And then on the higher uh, higher income side, the higher-end side, it's kind of the high-skilled immigration that you hear a lot in Silicon Valley about the need for more computer programmers and other technical talent. Yes. So let me uh, go a little bit more in depth into this uh, partition that you did, which I think is very important. You use this word uh, at the low end of the education. So relatively unskilled manual worker do jobs that Americans don't want to do. So uh, the way economists explain this um, is that Americans, because they have are becoming more educated, they're also becoming older as a society, are quickly moving out of some manual intensive, uh, relatively unskilled type of jobs but the demand for this is relatively high think of manual job in personal service child care elderly care construction agricultural services these are typically job that are filled then with immigrants and immigrants by taking this job allow companies and economies that live off this type of activity to expand and to grow and to create related job, connected job, that actually American will do. So a construction company will certainly need construction worker, but will also need engineers, sales representative, accountants. And with the company staying in business because it can hire immigrants, it will grow and hire in other type of job where most Americans actually will work. So that's uh, it's the complementarity measure rather than the competition only of immigrants that opens up this possibility that actually more immigrants not only grow the economy, but can actually create job opportunities for American workers. And that's one of the channels through which this positive effect works. Of course, at the high end of the spectrum, the scientist and engineer are even more, if anything, needed for company to grow and to increase in size. And so, as you say, certainly Silicon Valley is an example in where a very large number of immigrants has allowed the sector to grow, to have an 
world leadership and to give job to a lot of others American too. So the fallacy that there is one job and if it's taken by immigrant is not taken by native is a fallacy because the number of jobs is not fixed in an economy, an economy that can grow thanks also to the contribution of immigrant, can create job. And so one more immigrant is more than one more job, is one more job for him or her, and then more jobs for the rest of the economy. And I, I think another argument that I've read in, in various research is that um, when immigrants do take lower wages, either because you know they, they really want this job or that matches what their skill set, whatever it is, that can help keep costs low for businesses, which means higher profits for them. It could also mean lower costs for American consumers. So that's something to think about as well. But I do want to turn to sort of the argument for tighter immigration controls, or I don't, I don't know if we want to call it against immigrants. I don't think that fits necessarily. Necessarily, But you touched on it just now. Immigrants take jobs that Americans need. So this idea that instead of it being complementary, as you mentioned, there is just one job and the immigrant takes it. And then, you know, that leaves a native born worker without a job that might fit uh, his or her skill set. And if we look at that argument, Giovanni, who would be the types of workers, the types of American workers who would be uh, most impacted by that? Given that at the low end of the skill spectrum, immigrants are tendentially taking these uh, manual intensive jobs um, in agriculture, construction and services, American workers who do the more directly jobs which are more directly in competition with them will be more at risk. Uh, now, the data show that a lot of Americans have actually moved out of this job at a relatively quick uh, speed. Uh, and in places where immigrants are, Americans move out and do uh, jobs which are more, um, uh, more interactive. So they go from being construction worker to supervisor. They go from being agricultural worker to farm manager at a faster speed when immigrants arrive because they have to find other niches where they can uh, complement and take advantage of the richer structure of skill in the economy. But certainly, low educated, older worker who will have a hard time transitioning are the one who could be more at risk. In aggregate, I would say that most of the data and most of the research in the United States both looking at cities, at states, at counties, does not seem to find a net negative effect on the jobs, even of relatively low-skilled American, but certainly some specific categories and some specific group of workers who are displaced, at least in the short run, uh, by uh, this immigrant could be, uh, for a while at least, uh, uh, suffering out of this. Right. And Giovanni, what about on the wages side? Because supply and demand just tells us that if you increase the number of workers, that would lead to a suppression in wages. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, supply and demand will tell you what you just said. If uh, you are comparing oranges with oranges, the same type of worker. So if you have one type of worker and you increase the supply, then the wage of those will go down. But if nothing else changes, obviously. But there are a couple of things which actually happen when immigrants come. First, as I said, they have somewhat different skills. So they take type of niches which are not the same as the one where Americans are. Second, when American immigrant workers come in, firms 
respond to this. So invest more, look for more hires, and this increases capital, and so it may in turn increase demand. So certainly there is a little bit of this competition effect because, uh, as we said, there are some worker in direct competition, but there is also some effect in complementarity. So you have to look uh, again in aggregate, but that very simple model in which when you increase uh, supply, the wages go down, is only true if I have identical workers and if everything else is completely constant. Immigrant, let me emphasize this other point, do not come in all at a certain point. They've been coming in relatively slowly. So the economy that has received them has had time to invest, to adjust, and worker, American worker, have had time to recalibrate their specialization, their education, also as a consequence of immigration. So I would say that the long run effect are the more important. The one in which you not only look at the increase in supply of immigrant worker, but also you see how American firms respond to that and how American workers specialization changes as a consequence of that. In that type of framework, which happens over five, ten years, American workers tend to be more differentiated from immigrants and so tend to suffer less and benefit more in their wages, in their productivity from the inflow of immigrants. On wages, I want to say one more thing, which has to do with the highly skilled. The highly skilled scientists and engineers are a clear input to American technological growth, maybe one of the most important inputs. And American technological growth in the last 40 years has been the main reason why productivity in the U.S. have grown and with it wages. So in the long run, having more of that group can actually result in higher wages because of higher productivity of everybody. Think of how information technology has transformed the way we do a lot of things in healthcare, in services, in education, and how the productivity of worker has gone up because of that. If you think that part of that innovation and that changes is brought by that segment of immigrants, then you have a very big long-run effect on wages that could be actually very positive. So we're going to take a quick break to digest all of this. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the history of immigration and also why this topic has become so big now in both the U.S. and the U.K. and how this tension could be resolved after we come back. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. Well, so Giovanni, um, I mean, one more thing that we didn't talk about just now was uh, the whole idea of use of public services and the tax base. And that's sort of just a whole other can of worms that we could talk about uh, at length. But is there anything that the research shows there? Because there, you know, there is this notion out there that immigrants come in and they use all these government services and they don't pay their fair share into the system. Well, so again, let me separate the effect of high and less educated uh, and argue that each one of them probably does not impact too much, uh, does not have a big fiscal impact on the U.S. So the highly educated, typically, they will have an average wage which is higher than the average American, so they will contribute more in the system that they take. Moreover, many of them come when they are young, and so they have a long contributing life ahead of them before start taking anything out of this uh, 
in social security. So in fact, having more highly skilled immigrants is a general consensus, is a way of improving significantly the fiscal balance of the US. Less educated, well, there is this interesting fact. Uh, low educated immigrants in the US uh, are working in a very large part. Um, they are, as you were saying before, in large part Mexican or Latino who are employed. Um, and uh, they, um, given that a very big share of them is actually undocumented, they don't have access currently to any of the welfare, uh, the welfare benefits that the U.S. guarantee. They don't have access to food stamps, to welfare transfer, to unemployment transfer. But on the other hand, they pay a, a large chunk of taxes. They pay certainly consumption taxes, certainly the real estate through the rent that they pay. Some of them even pay income taxes through the fake social security number that they have, they pay social security tax. So the net accounting even there for less educated is that uh, currently they probably contribute more than they take out in the system. And of course, this will change if there is a regularization which allow them to access some of the benefit of the US. But uh, you have to keep in mind that the welfare state in the US is not too generous and is only really very restricted to citizen. Even temporary worker, temporary uh, immigrant on temporary visa do not have access to these benefits. So uh, chances are that they will stay as an active contributor to the U.S. Uh, public sector, even if they are legalized uh, as long as or before getting their uh, citizenship. So overall, I don't think there are bad news on that side either. Overall, it looks like they could be a net uh, fiscal positive for the U.S. And you mean welfare, our welfare system's generosity in comparison to, to Europe, for example? Yes, yes. In comparison to Europe, in particular, in Northern Europe is certainly much much uh, more limited than the U.S. generosity. Right. Giovanni, before we went to break, you talked about how lower educated older workers are probably going to be the ones who lose out the most with an influx of immigration, although it is it is also difficult to kind of compare. You know, you said it wasn't an oranges to oranges comparison. Um, and of course, in the U.K., it seems like a lot of people who voted to leave the European Union were lower educated, lower income, older voters. So why do you think immigration has become such a hot topic these days, both in the U.S. and the U.K.? And I wonder how you see the tension being resolved somehow. So I have a couple of potential uh, explanation or reason why immigration is such a, such a hot button. So one is that uh, it is true that relatively older middle-class worker in Western countries have not done very well in general in terms of wages and income. In the last 10, 20 years, the wages of the median, particularly older uh, worker in the US and in the UK and in Europe has not grown very much. Now, economists tend to agree that immigration probably has nothing to do with this. Uh, in large part, is technology. Uh, technology has mechanized and informatized a lot of the jobs that used to be relatively well-paying. In part, is globalization. There, of course, there is trade, and some of these jobs have been assured. But even if immigration is not the cause of this, or at least economists can pinpoint that it is not uh, the cause of this. Uh, uh, in the imagery uh, that is proposed, it's very easy to say, oh, look, you have not been doing very well. And there is a simple explanation. Are the immigrants that come in? Because there is a simple solution. Close the border and the problem goes away. So simple and very uh, characterization of the problem, I would say incorrect. And then simple solution maybe is appealing from a political point of view. I was reading a piece of research and um, it said that wages have been stagnant in 
in in the UK for a while. Housing is hard to find and and expensive, and at the same time, you have government austerity um, that's making public services causing kind of a crunch there. And so it's very easy to look at that scenario and say, wow, if we had less people, maybe this would be easier to deal with. Yes, correctly. So it's easy to uh, make the connection. And I think even this, this little model that you were mentioning before, increase the supply and wages go down, I think people think that they understand it. And I think that the economy is just as simple as that. And so that's also part of the easy communication of, of that part. So that's one. The other reason is that I think immigration involves uh, many other sentiments be- besides economics. And obviously, there are a sequence of cultural security type of issues. And so it's easy to just bundle up everything and propose one solution to uh, all of the foes of the modern society in uh, uh, pushing away immigrants. I really think, though, that this is neither unique to this country nor unique to our time. Uh, The U.S. has gone through several periods of a very strong anti-immigration sentiment in the 1910s, 1920s, when immigrants were at a level which was as high as today. Incredibly tough draconian law against immigration were passed because... uh, the Italian, the Irish, the Polish were seen as these new immigrant stealing jobs and also bringing culture and risks that were not known before. So we need to have also patience because history has been going through this before. And I think informing people about the facts and emphasizing the importance of, I think, a correct economic understanding in order to do good policy is very important today as it was in the past. So Giovanni, is it safe to say that you think immigration is generally good for an economy? Uh, yes, I would say uh, that in general it is. Uh, let me add these two general classification of immigration that are also different from the perception. Immigration in general, certainly to the US and the UK, has been more high-skilled than low-skilled. If you w- look at the spectrum, there is a little higher percentage of college uh, educated in immigrants than in the population. So immigration has been good also because it has increased the level of education of the receiving country. And second, immigration happens relatively slowly so that countries have been able to adjust. Immigration is a force that changes the economy and if countries take this opportunity in the long run can really improve productivity, can improve the skills available. It's a little bit like technology. It's hard to see the world changing from today to tomorrow, but over a decade, the world changes a lot because of that. And I think immigration, certainly to the UK and to the US, has been this force bringing skills, changes, innovation, but also more worker and absorbed in the right way can be definitely a force for growth. And the long-run effect, I would say, are uh, certainly more positive than negative. As a Japanese citizen living and working in San Francisco right now, I like to think that I bring quite a lot of innovation to the American economy. I would agree. <laughs> that, that is 100% true, Aki. Not only you bring a lot of innovation, but your own country is losing and missing a lot of innovation by not admitting more immigrants. Uh, Japan has been one of the toughest countries in terms of admitting immigrants, just to make a digression. And its economy in the last 20 years has been quite slow and quite stable. So that could be almost a counterexample of the, the what immigration and new ideas and creativity brings. And you make a fantastic point that, you know, immigration is an issue that countries have been dealing with for decades and decades, almost centuries now. This isn't the first time the U.S. has gone through, I don't want to call it a crisis, but 
there are definitely fears and concerns out there about immigration and, and how many people we let in. So it seems like history is just sort of repeating itself here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the interesting thing, uh, the interesting difference, I would say, with the previous historical period of large immigration, which was the early 1900, was that in that period, I would say that immigration to the U.S. was almost genuinely free. Everybody who showed up uh, in Ellis Island or in San Francisco was admitted unless they uh, had some sort of diseases. And then progressively, there were tougher and tougher immigration restrictions. Now, immigration is very regulated already. I guess people sometimes hearing this think that immigration is relatively free to the U.S. Immigration is the most regulated and restricted uh, flow uh, in on earth. So goods and investment and ideas flow much, much more freely. People in terms of mobility of labor is much, more, much, much more constrained. On average in the U.S., um, maybe uh, 700,000 people come in every year as immigrants. This is 0.5% uh, uh, of the labor force of the United States. These are small and slow uh, numbers, but still, I agree with you, the worries of the border, the immigrants which are different in maybe ethnicity, in culture, uh, brings this incredible level of anxiety both in Europe and in the US. And good policymakers and good politicians have to address it, explain it, and turn it for the best. I think, yeah, and I think it's, I think it's mostly undocumented immigrants that, that wrinkle people the most, though. And, and that's sort of understandable if, if people aren't going through the process Maybe America is a country full of rule followers. I don't know. I don't believe that. <laughs> but, so, but there's this idea about people getting around the rules, though, that, that really sorts of gets under people's skin. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's interesting, though, about undocumented uh, immigrants. And let me say why I think uh, there is a little bit bias in the perception there, too. Uh, in the last... Uh, uh, so, as you have said, uh, the net inflow of undocumented is zero. In fact, has been negative in the last 10 years. So, the inflow of undocumented was really an issue of the 90s and the early 2000s. Now, we have the undocumented. And so now, the issue is uh, how to find a path mm -hmm. for these people. But back then... The the uh, American economy was growing, especially in the 90s, and one was creating a lot of these jobs which were manual, low-skilled. And American companies were very willing to hire people uh, who were foreign-born because there were very few Americans uh, available. However, there was no way whatsoever to accept legally person to do the job unless a person had a relative in the United States. Everybody else who was a Mexican worker of an of unskilled type, not a professional, could not find a visa to come. And this was a big difference relatively to the high skill for which the H-1B visa program since 1990s has allowed people uh, like uh, uh, Aki, like me, to come into the country if we had a job offer. So yes, it's true that people are against the uh, bypassing the line and not following the rule. But Literally, there was this incredible creation of jobs and firm willing to hire, and there was no legal way to come in. And the U.S. for a while has closed an eye. Mm -hmm. And now, all in a sudden, that this is not a need anymore because that uh, uh, inflow has leveled, people think, oh, wow, now these people have broken the rules. Well, these people have, just as the company who hired them mm -hmm. has broken the rules. And so we need to find a way out of this because I think as of now, the fact is that 11 million people have been 
been in the US, many of them for 5, 10, 15 years, and the disruption of sending them back on the American economy will be so massive that I would say no reasonable person can see such a huge, even just economic cost, forget about the human and moral cost, just such huge economic cost. So it's true that Americans follow the rule, but there is a little bit of hypocrisy in this attitude now. Well, Giovanni, this is this has been a fascinating conversation and I think a, a great one for Aki and I to end our time on Benchmark with. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining Tori and I one last time on Bloomberg Benchmark. The show's going to be back again next week, this time with Dan at the helm. So make sure you tune in and maybe even write to Dan to tell him how much you miss us. <laughs> and as always, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter at AkiIto7 and at Tori Stillwell. Tune in next week. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99.